Here we are. Welcome to the uh, Friday live stream Q&A with me, uh, Mike Winger, a pastor in Southern California, answering your questions about Jesus, God, the Bible, Christianity, all that stuff. The questions are flooding in. If you're new here, this is where you put a question in very quickly <laughs> and we grab 20 of them at the beginning of the stream. And uh, you just put a Q at the beginning of your question if you've never done this before or A-N-Q if you want your question to be asked anonymously. And I will get to 20 of them. We obviously can't get to them all. Sometimes we get questions that I've answered recently, so we may skip over your question, in which case you can check BibleThinker.org, my website. You can search our Q&A there, and you can actually find places where I've answered maybe your specific question. That's our website. And I'm going to get to the first question today before I tell you more about any of that stuff, and that is this one, quite a challenging one. I've been challenged, the anonymous question uh, it says... I've been challenged with the accusation that the Bible promotes killing, rape, and slavery, quoting Numbers 31, 15 through 18. I don't want to simply prove them wrong. That doesn't address this person's heart. Would you please help? <laughs> and, and I guess, you know, um, sometimes uh, it's good to just throw the hardest question you got at me. Um, and the, re the thing that makes this hard isn't the issue... So, I mean, the issue is challenging. Don't get me wrong. It's the heart. It's the person's heart. That's the challenge. So let me say there's two things going on here. We're going to read the passage in Numbers, but there's two things going on here, at least in my opinion. And the two things are, one, um, understanding things in context. That is actually knowing what the Bible says. Because for, for someone to say that the Bible supports killing, rape, and um, and slavery is... Um, is, is manifestly wrong. It's it's just not true. It's not a fact. That's not true. Um, so that you can do. You could show, show the passages in context, talk about them, and we'll work through some of that. I mean, like, quick preview for you, because I'm not going to go into all these details. This would be a three-hour video just on one topic. But the, um, the, the idea of killing, I mean, God forbids killing. You shall not kill. You shall not murder in particular, right? And so the Bible doesn't support killing. Like someone's going to go out and just start killing people and be like, the Bible supports me killing people. Like, obviously this is a crass, horrible, and immoral way to, to, to try to represent scripture. If they say it supports rape, like that is completely false. We'll talk about that in this passage today. Um, and then in slavery, I mean, if, if the rules in the Bible that were regulating a practice that was world has been worldwide for most of human history, slavery. Um, if those rules had been put in place during, say, early America, all the slavers would have been executed. Did you hear me? Right? And uh, slaves, if they ran away from, uh, a, you know, somebody who was uh, a slave owner, they would, the, the town they ran to would be forced to provide them a place to stay and required not to send them back to the person they ran from. You see, it was just, it's very different. Like, these are the actual policies in place. Of course, in the New Testament, we're, we're called to an even higher calling. Than that and we're not it's not national it's it's individual and all this other stuff but um, i have a video on the topic of slavery you guys can check in the link below so what you can see is that this is just like absolutely manifestly not true like it's just not true that the bible supports killing rape and slavery like that's 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 a lie that's a lie somebody's believing and then the heart issue comes in and this is this is the part that's the harder one to deal with and that is understanding the fear of the lord that this is the beginning of wisdom. If we approach God and this, okay, I'm going to tell you guys just me talking here, flow of thought. And I don't know how to fix somebody on this issue. All I know how to do is point it out. 
right? All, all I know in the conversation is to change the subject from understanding a passage in context if that's not if that's not important to them, if that doesn't matter to them. It's even offensive to some people. I've I've discussed these things online with people who, when I go, well, when you look at it in context, and then they start mocking and ridiculing me for looking at something in context. And I want you to think about the depth of self-confusion that is that is there when you actually don't want to understand the Bible in context because you might not hate it so much. Like that's, then you're dealing with a heart issue. Okay, so I stopped talking about the context and I want to start talking about the heart. But how do you talk to a stranger on the internet or, or, or a random person about their heart issues? This is a challenge every time. It's always difficult. As Proverbs says, like when you bring correction to someone who's, who's like a fool, they may turn and attack you. They may hate you for it. But a wise man, if he's corrected, he will love you for it, right? Because those are the wounds of a friend. Those are the, the hurts that heal. So the fear of the Lord, um, there's just two things I'll mention briefly, and we'll go into the numbers passage, then we'll do all your questions today. And the best, best answers I can give you guys off the cuff <laughs> that I'm able to, and I hope they help you think biblically about everything. Um, there's two things that stand out to me as I was thinking about this. One is arrogance and the other one's entitlement. Now, forgive me, I'm already triggering people, I know it. Because I just used some really strong words to describe a posture of somebody who looks at God and thinks, you owe me and you got some explaining to do. But I think that these are the two issues that lead to those. I think God owes me, that when I think God owes me, or he owes humanity, that he creates humans and he owes us certain kinds of better treatment than say judgment or punishment or or something like um, the 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 sor sorrowful death of a child or something. And I think you owe me better than that, God. That's a sense of entitlement. And if we approach God with that, we act like God is our servant and we are his master. That's, I don't know how to fix that except to point out the folly of it. That God, God doesn't, I mean, he, he lovingly provides for us, but to think that he owes us that. Is, is a different step, isn't it? Okay, that, that's a problem. Um, this approach of entitlement can really spoil us as we're reading scripture and we, and we reach passages of judgment like the one in Numbers that we're going to talk about in a second. This is a passage where God judges a nation and an entitlement mentality says he's not being nice to them. He's being cruel. He's being judgmental. He's judging. He's actually killing people. Like, God can't do that. Like I just, we deserve better than that. That sense of entitlement is the sort of um, starting point for how we're going to look at and evaluate God. But on judgment day, when we stand before God, truly stand before God to be judged, no one is going to be able to raise their hand and say, God, I have a list of things you owe me. Like this is, this is why the second issue is arrogance. And arrogance is thinking that you can tell God what his business is. I think when you approach a passage where God punishes sin, there are two diametrically opposed responses. One, wow, sin must be really bad. Or two, wow, God must be really bad. I think that we need to fall on the sin must be really bad category, lest we lest we move into a type of like philosophical insanity. I mean, the idea that God, the, the one who knows the hearts, who knows the, the purpose, who knows the plan, who's, who's morally pure and perfect, that he is the one who's in error as we read him punishing sin. And sometimes that punishment, I would say, overflows onto, onto even kids. And, and, and that's an intense moment. And that's like, wow, this is, this is, it doesn't get any more intense than this. But yet I'm coming from a posture of I respect God, I trust God, 
And I know that he has an eternal and perfect plan for all the future things. So I look and I say, God, you have a right to judge your creation as you see fit. And you have reasons, whether I'm always familiar with them or not. That's the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. And um, and I don't know how to make people feel that way. I, I, I want to talk to them about it, pray, pray for them, and ask the Lord to work on their hearts. But lest I go on too, too long on the first question, let's just quickly run through the numbers passage. And I'll show you guys how context is sometimes um, rejected in these discussions. I'm going to read verses 17 and 18 because these are the verses that people often read. Now, now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known man uh, who has known man by lying with him, that is having sex. But all the young girls who have not known man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. Uh, this is how I've heard this verse promoted online when people say things like the Bible supports rape. This is, this is how I've heard it used. Um, so the, the Israelites are to go out into other nations and they're to just kill everybody except for the girls they keep alive so they can have them as, and here's the, here's the term I've heard used, sex slaves, because that would be the promotion of rape and slavery, right? Killing, rape, and slavery are all right there in these passages. Um, let's unpack that a little bit. Um, the killing is judicial and it is, and it is rare. It is like this never happens and it's forbidden to happen at other times. It is only through the direct command of God. So this is a judicial command. God is judging and, and he's not suggesting in this passage, which easily, especially in a cancel culture like we have now, where you could take one sentence out of context and then, uh, you know, condemn a person because of it. Um, this is, this is meant to be a statement in context. Anybody who cares about understanding the text rightly knows this is specifically about the Midianites, specifically about a group of people who, according to the text of scripture, had hundreds of years of rebellion against God, and now their whole society and culture has to end. Do you catch that? Not about the Israelites. It's about them. Their culture is being ended. God's destroying and ending their culture. Any, any of the, the males who would survive and live on into adulthood would probably continue the same disgusting and perverted culture with bestiality and who knows what kind of other things were going on, false worship. Of course, some think it's no big deal if you're worshiping a false God, but that's where we're going to be disagreeing with God on that topic. Um, so this is not something to be repeated. This was a one-time thing, right? It happened just as they're entering the land as God's judging and removing those nations. Why is it though that the women are, are killed and the young girls are left alive? Is this, is this like a type of sex slavery as I've heard it presented online from many people? And those who present it to me online, I, I'm convinced that most of the ones I've interacted with, they don't care what it really means. Like they don't care. They get angry when I try to explain it. There's the hard issue. I set aside those conversations because that's, I'm spinning my wheels. You don't care about the truth here. You're just, you're want to be, want to be mad. Um, so here's a few of the background things you want to know. The, um, this you read about this in numbers 22 through 25 those those four chapters right there the king of the midianites hired balaam who was who's a prophet and to prophesy like basically curse the people of israel balaam can't curse them because god is protecting them and god's going to bless them so multiple times he tries and fails the one thing he does do is he seems to give balaam uh, balak advice that what he needs to do is um cause them to sin against god and so what the Midianites do is they send their women who are trained in sexual practices as part of their religious orgies and stuff like that that they do in their cult. And they send their women into amongst the Israelites who start 
basically prostituting themselves out in a religious fashion. So their prostitution is something that is meant to draw the Israelites away from God so that God will curse them because the Midianites just want to destroy the Israelites. Now, do you see there's a very different context than what you'd think reading those two verses? If you look at um, Numbers 25, we get a little more details. Here we go, verse 1. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. That's, I, I kept saying Midianites, uh, Moabites, excuse me. Um, these invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, right? So it's it's sex and 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 idolatry are combined here in that culture. They're part of the same thing. These invited the people to the sacrifices and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And so this is all part of the judgment. This is the background of, of the judgment that then comes upon them. And the judgment is, hey, you need to remove these Midianites. They're, they're a cancerous culture. This is what they are. Their culture is, is going to destroy you. And morally and religiously and spiritually, as God's setting up his people, they're going to see how, how important it is that they keep themselves clean from the ungodly practices and beliefs of the people around them. And so the, the, let's talk about the girls, though, because this is the part. Are they sex slaves? And this is the response to that. Deuteronomy 21.10. The women who had not been part of this practice, who had not d used their bodies and to commit sexual immorality with the men of Israel in order to bring their idolatry into the people of Israel, the women who had not been part of that, who had not been part of that culture, who had kept themselves pure, they are left alive, but for what purpose? Deuteronomy 21.10 tells us about these sort of um, um, POWs. Sorry, I don't know if you guys hear that. Hopefully not. <laughs> Someone's trying to call me. Um, when you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and desire to take her to be your wife and you bring her home to your house, here's the procedure. Okay, this is the what if. Like you see her and you want her to be your wife, not your sex slave, your wife. Here's the procedure that, that God puts in, in place for them in that culture. This is, this is unheard of for them. And you bring her to your home, to your house. She shall shave her head and pare her nails. And she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and remain in your house and lament her, her father and her mother a full month. The shaving, the hair and nails and all this, these clothes, this is all about um, a few things. I guess there's three things going on here. One is uh, ritual purity, okay? Levitical law, laws of Israel, lots of religious purity that goes on there. So you're, she's, she's separating herself from the impurity of the, of the culture she was part of before and the religious stuff she may have been part of. And she's going to take off the clothes in which she was captured. Why? Because she, her status is being elevated. She is not going to be a slave for sex. She's not going to stay in those clothes. And she'll remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month. You can't touch her for a month. This is the opposite of sex slavery. You can't touch her. This, this is she goes through a mourning process, a grieving process. And then after that, you may go into her and be her husband, not her, she's not your concubine, right? She's your wife. So this is, def this is definitely not that kind of sex slavery stuff. I'm sorry. I don't know why my phone's blowing up. I'm just going to check and make sure I don't have a problem with the stream that people are trying to tell me about. Um, no. Okay. As far as I can tell. All right. We have all, all 20 questions in today. Just so you guys know, all 20 have already been loaded. I will be answering them all one at a time. And, uh, and if, you know, 
if you're a friend of mine, please stop texting me for the next hour. <laughs> so, um, so she'll take off the clothes, she mourns, and then she becomes a wife. This, this right here, it seems very strange and foreign to us. So that's why we have to understand things in context. In the culture, in the time, a woman who is brought in as a slave, a, say a POW, is very likely going to be used for sexual abuses. That's that's the nature. That's how humans are. But God's law says they can't do that. You can make her a wife, but she gets to go through the purity process. She gets to mourn for a month. You got to wait a month, so all these impulsive desires are going to be gone. And then she becomes your wife, not your concubine, your wife. And then it goes on and tells you. What if you don't like her? Because this is use, abuse, and throw away is the idea of sex slavery. But no, that doesn't happen. Verse 14. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. You shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave since you have humiliated her. Right? You wronged her because you brought her in as a wife and then you sent her away. But you will send her away free as a free person, as a, as a wife who has been sent away, not as a slave you can sell. She is not your property. You catch that? Okay, so what I'm suggesting here is that, that um, the women were allowed to be, they were not part of the cleansing of that culture and of, of the wickedness because they weren't part of those things. They were able to become, you know, part of Israel, even be married, but they would have gone through the same procedure that would have kept it from being some kind of sex slavery thing. The hardest part for, I think, our hearts today to get through is the idea that um, um, God is the rightful judge of mankind and that you know, even though, you know, he's like, you can't just co-kill people. This is wrong. There are times where God brings a flood. God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah or God commands, go in and bring my judgment down on those people. And it has happened very small number of times throughout human history. And we have to recognize that God has the right to judge his creatures. If you really think he doesn't have a right to judge, then you're in danger of the entitlement and arrogance that will bring you into judgment one day. Humble yourself before the Lord. He'll lift you up. He's God. He created all of this out of nothing. He owns it all. He's the righteous judge of it all. And even for those who are, I would say, collateral damage in the judgment of God on a culture, right? Children, I believe they're in God's eternal presence. That 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 is a temporary suffering that God, they're the collateral damage that God brought because the culture had to be removed, destroyed. But they are brought into his presence and they're rescued in the end. But even that can only be done at God's command. It's not like the Bible's supporting that. That That's just not true. Um, good luck explaining it to people who don't want to hear it. <laughs> God help them. Pray for them. Be gracious. Be patient. Be loving. Don't respond in kind to the irritations they have. Number two. All right. It can only get easier from here. Number two. Thank you for your ministry. FAC asked the question. Um, from Japan. Nice. Um, as a follow-up to your teaching on the death penalty, this question is from my skeptic brother. He says, isn't it better to rehabilitate offenders in hopes that they may come to repentance and give their lives to God? Um, so, yes. I mean, it's better in, in, in a sense of being ideal is definitely better. But let me slow down a little bit. Um, they're not the only people in the situation. So we, we have, you know, based on scripture, what we've got is there's a society going on here. The whole society matters. Laws are not for criminals. They're for non-criminals. Does that make sense? Laws aren't there for criminals. They're for the non-criminals. And there is a perspective on, on um, policing and on what we used to call like a penitentiary or a, or a um, 
Um, now we would call it a corrections facility a lot of time. So the question is, what is our prison for? Is the prison there to punish the criminal or to fix the criminal? And if, if prisons and laws and punishments exist primarily to fix, that's the number one issue, to fix the person, then the death penalty would seem to always be off the table. Like you can never, you would never enforce the death penalty because that's not going to fix them. It may, it may help society. We've removed a murderer from society because I don't think you should have the death penalty for lesser offenses, but for, yeah, for, um, for murder. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it might, if, if all we care about is this guy that committed murder, well, we're not going to give him the death penalty because we, we want him to survive. We want him to have a chance. We want him to grow, to, to change, to develop, and maybe things will get better. Um, now statistically that doesn't normally happen. Uh, I think that when people spend many, many years in inst institutionalized, they tend to get worse, not better. My own cousin, I remember when he went to prison and, um, he came back out and he was not better. <laughs> it wasn't a correctional facility for him. I think most guys going in aren't coming out better. Um, that's just the, just the nature of things. Um, we just give longer and longer sentences. So yeah, my, my thought is ideally that would be in an ideal world, but because we we're not just concerned about them, there's also the victim. There's also the culture that we're, once you bring this murderer to the judge, here's a, an interesting moral thing. I think that the society is now on the hook for bringing justice to the situation. And when we put him in, in jail and we never, ever, ever bring execution to someone who say he killed, he killed um, someone's daughter. And the person's like, what about justice? And, the, and then you say, oh no, we're trying to re rehabilitate him, which is probably not going to happen. I think that probably if we want to see him come to God, the most really, I mean, the thing that's probably going to cause him to most seriously consider his mortality and his standing before God is him standing on death row. If we're going to be honest about it. Right. I mean, it's then that he's going to take that thing, those things real seriously. But if he just thinks he has to jump through some, through some hoops and convince a, a parole board and then, then it becomes a different game. He's not standing before God. He's just standing before the parole board. Um, so I, I hope that those things help. Um, there's an issue of justice. I think that also the, the, I'm just summarizing my views. There's an issue of justice. There's, it's not just about the man. It's about the society and the culture and the responsibility of the courts to bring justice to those who commit crimes, not just to fix people who are criminals and make them better, but to make it right for those, for, for the society and for those they, they hurt, right? Justice is not about fixing the criminal. That's not primarily the issue there. And... Um, I think we make, do make a bunch of really bad choices when we think it is. All right, number three. R. Fish says, I've heard it taught that the apostles were being presumptuous when filling Judas's empty position. Why did they choose to apply Psalm 69.25 and Psalm 109 verse 8 to the situation? Um, I heard this too. Um, and let me give you guys why this is even a question. Well, let me, let's read it first and then we'll talk about it briefly. Um, all right, Acts 1.12, it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they'd entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter, John, and James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. And notice there's one guy missing, and that's Judas Iscariot, because this is not that same Judas, right? Judas Iscariot's gone. Then they're all praying. They're all together with Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers, which is to say that his, well, that's another issue about how they had seen the risen Christ. Um, but there's a piece of evidence for it. Um, then Peter stands up 
And he says this, verse 16, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which was which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field and talks about how he died. Um, and let's, I, I want to talk about the verses he quotes. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And a different Psalm says, let another take his office. So this seems to be, from we read it, we go, oh, Peter's saying like the Psalms predicted Judas not being one of the 12 and then someone else taking his office. This is how we often read this. Then verse 21, so one of the men who have, who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus uh, went out, went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must come with us, a witness become with us, a witness of his resurrection. And they put forward two guys and they end up picking a guy named Matthias. They can't pick between the two and they, they, they cast lots. It falls on Matthias. Either of these guys is a good choice. So they, they end up with Matthias. Here's the dilemmas, a couple different things. One, um, like you brought out, why are these verses in the Psalms don't seem to be talking about Judas directly. So why are they being used by Peter? Also the Holy, and here's the, what I'd heard at a younger age, the Holy Spirit had not yet come at Pentecost and they're making a decision about a new apostle and the Holy Spirit hasn't come. And so some think Peter and the apostles are here not functioning as proper representatives of God's will or proper leaders in the church because they're doing this before the Holy Spirit comes upon them. I, I, I'm going to push back on the second one first, then we'll answer the verses supposedly out of context. Um, the second issue the Holy Spirit hadn't come yet, I, I think doesn't work because Jesus had been using them as his actual honest representatives the whole time, right? They're the apostles. He commissions them. Um, then he commissioned them as well. You know, it, after his resurrection, he commissions Peter, right? Peter, hey, you're the leader. You're you're one of the leaders. I mean, certainly a significant leader in the church along with the apostles. And uh, Peter, I mentioned Peter because he had fallen away and Jesus kind of restored him. We also have the fact that at the end of uh, Luke, I believe it is. He said he it says he breathes on them and tells them receive the Spirit. So they weren't like devoid of the Spirit. They just hadn't had the Pentecost moment yet. All these gifts. Okay, so the, I think that we're assuming too much. One reason why people don't like Matthias as this apostle is because they want Paul to be the twelfth apostle. And and I I understand part of the motive there. There's a symmetry in having just twelve, because you've got, you know, the eleven and then Paul and then you've got these twelve gates in, in, in revelation and the 12 apostles and all that. Um, I, there's a number of reasons why I'm going to push back against that, but we're presuming a lot here. Like we are reading this passage, Acts chapter one. And what we're saying is this whole thing was a mistake. I think that that's assuming a lot. I think we're, we're burdening ourselves with saying that the first thing they did after Christ ascended was a, was a bad move. And it doesn't look that way when you read Acts. Acts, we just read Acts 1. It doesn't look that way. Some go, well, Matthias, he never shows up again in the rest of Scripture. We never read. But you don't read about most of the apostles because it's, the Scripture is not a historical account of the apostles. Right? It's, it's a historical account of Jesus and the church. Okay, So it, it doesn't just track with each individual apostle. We, we don't read about a number of them much after this. So, um, or at all in many cases. So let's deal with finally with the verses. Um, it does seem that the book of Psalms, these verses are not obviously talking about, um, about Judas. Let's, let's look at one of them. Psalms 69, 25. 
Um, make their may their camp be de a desolation and let no one dwell in their tents. Okay, but this is a plural in Psalm 69. This is a plural. It's, it's talking about a group of people who have done wicked things. Um, it does seem to apply to the situation of the cross overall, right? They gave me poison for, for my food and for my first, they gave me sour drink. But I would look at Psalm 69 not as, and I'm going to give you guys at least my understanding of this, having spent a lot of time on prophecy and typology. You could read the whole song. It just takes so long to go through it all. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to nutshell it for you. All right, here it is in a nutshell. Um, there's prophecy, which is just clear predictions. This will happen to the Messiah. The, you know, whether they use the word Messiah or not, right? We, we understand they're talking about the Messiah. This is going to happen. You know, this will be fulfilled and then it happens. That's kind of like pr just very prophetic. This is going to happen and then it happens. Then there's what's called typology. And this is where Jesus is seen as the fulfillment of David, the fulfillment of Israel, the fulfillment of Moses, the fulfillment of, num of a number of different pictures like the high priest or the temple or the tabernacle itself. Jesus is seen as the fulfillment of these things. And in the New Testament, they're, they're often talking about the typology stuff, not just the prophecy stuff. And I think that's what Peter's doing here. He talks about stuff that does relate to the cross. It's just not a direct prophecy of the cross. So he's merely saying, here, here is scriptural sort of relevance to the thing that's happening now. I think that's all he's saying there. And I think we should see it that way. Not as here's a one-to-one -one fulfillment. Oftentimes people think that the New Testament, I hear this even from scholars and pastors sometimes every once in a while, that the New Testament wrongly uses Old Testament writings. Oh, they're quoting that verse wrong. And the reality is we just don't recognize the typology that's going on here, which is significant and powerful and important. And that I think is what happened is happening in Acts chapter one. So uh, let me just make sure I got your question in full. You've heard it taught that the apostles are being presumptuous when filling Judas's empty position. My answer is there's no text that says they were. This is you read the chapter you wouldn't have thought that. Um, and oh, but they cast lots. Yeah, well, what's wrong with that? We've all agreed these two are good options. Let's make it, let's just cast lots and trust God to to have it fall as he as he likes. Like what would be wrong with that? Um, why did they choose to apply Psalm 60, 69, 25 and Psalm 109 verse 8 to the situation because of typology, uh, pictures of Jesus as the, as the, as the son of David who fulfills even the sufferings and the predictions of David and the, I should say the pictures of David that we read about in the Psalms. I think that would be my answer to that. All right. Number four. I hope that, I hope that helps. Sometimes I'm covering things and I'm like, wow, this, this should be like a much longer answer, but, um, I already talk forever. So number four, Terry Dufillo says Exodus thirty three twenty, no one can see my face and live. How do we reconcile this with Exodus thirty three eleven? The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as to a friend. Thank you. Love your ministry. Oh, you're very welcome, Terry. Let's look at these two passages and I will offer some thoughts. Thirty three twenty. As, as always, context is, is key here and context is not secret code for taking things out of context where you, you know, you, you context and all of a sudden it doesn't mean anything that it meant, but rather it's just understanding things correctly. Okay. Cause this, this is a, the sentence is stated in a context. All right. Um, and the Lord said to Moses, um, hold on, let me back up. This is what Moses wants from God. Um, 
he's like, hey, um, my, my presence will go with you. I will give you rest. And then Moses says, yeah, if your presence will not go with me, don't bring us up from here because he's fully dependent upon God. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Uh, we're going to be different than everybody because you're with us. This is Israel. What makes Israel different is God's presence with them. It's none of, nothing they do. Verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you've spoken, I will do for you. You have found favor in my sight and I know you by, by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. Now this is where he gets kind of bold because he's not like, yeah, you'll be with us, but I want you to like, show me your glory. Moses, it seems to me, is asking to see a full revelation of all that God is. Show me your glory. Not give me a sample, but I want to see the fullness of all you are. And God says, and he gives him a partial revelation. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. So it's, so does, does Moses see God? Well, he sees God in a sense, but it's a limited sense. He doesn't see God fully, which it, God's using the terminology, my face for my full glory. Moses will not see the full glory of God. It is not as though we're to think that God has an actual face that could, you could draw as an artist that has contours and that you can't see that, but rather that this see my face is a term referring to his full glory. I'll make my goodness pass before you. He allowed Moses to see some of him and we see his, he hides in the cleft of the rock and all this kind of thing. Then we get to um, Exodus 33, um, 11, which is actually, if you'll notice, we're backing up. Um, oh, no, no. Exodus 33, 20. Sorry. We're going forward now. But um, wait, what am I finding wrong here? Let me read your question again. I'm scanning it. I'm getting it wrong. Exodus 33, 20. No one can see my face and live. How do we reconcile this with Exodus 33, 11? There it is. Okay, it was just, I was just looking at the wrong verse. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Okay, um, here's where we have to notice context, right? Exodus 33, 11 is here. Exodus 33, 20 is here. 33, 11, God spoke to Moses face to face. 33, 20, nine verses later, you can't see my face. <laughs> So, unless we think the author of Exodus is is a nim, nimwit, right? Like he's, he's, is that the right? Dimwit? <laughs> is nimwit a thing? Uh, unless we think he's a fool, we have to realize he doesn't mean the same thing in these two verses, right? Plus, in verse 11, if see, speaking God to God face to face meant seeing God's full glory, as we have in verse 20, if that's what it meant, then why is Moses still asking for it merely a few verses later? Whatever speaking to God face-to-face -face is, it doesn't mean seeing God's full glory as in looking at his face. Um, and I think it, we, we see it in the qualifier here. God would speak to Moses face-to-face. -face. What does that mean? Oh, as a man speaks to his friend. In other words, conversationally. It's not that God would simply tell Moses things and Moses would receive them and write them down, but rather Moses could ask questions and God would dialogue with him. This is a rare thing. This is a special thing. When you sit with somebody and the two of you, it's not a lecture. You're, you're not up on stage. Right now, we're not face-to-face, -face, even though you see me. Right? This is a one-way delivery, a monologue, not a dialogue. Moses had a dialogue. That's, um, 
And that's how I see it. He also would would experience the whole afterglow. He would get some of God's glory that would kind of like emanate off of him after he spent time with the Lord. But he did not see God's full revelation of his full glory. That is the balance that Exodus 33 is giving us. And then Jesus shows up and he's like, in, in me, you see God. You see God. And how is God glorified in, in taking on our sin and our suffering and showing us his incredible love on the cross? That's how what he wants you to see as this full revelation of him. Next one, number five, Olivia Favor says, is there any biblical evidence that the beginning of Daniel's 70th week and Jesus opening the first of the seven seals in Revelation will occur roughly at the same time? Olivia, this is catching me a little off guard because it's just been a while since I've really delved into this. Um, I'm going to have, I'm going to have to pass on this one because I, here's what happens is I, there's things I could say here, but sometimes I know my answers are my answers. It's too far distant. The information is not super accessible to my brain right now. I'm going, Oh man. Yeah. What would be a, a three point case for that? And I can't pull it up. So I don't want to give you an insufficient answer because what I think happens is you think, Oh, that's the answer. And if that's not the good answer, I reject that view, but I'm not able to present you with the good answer. Um, yeah, the 70th week of Daniel, um, which I do see as future, um, which I do think is, is in the future. How do you specifically relate it to the opening of the first of the seven seals in revelation, the seals, like you could say that 70th week is a seven year period, right? And it also talks about half of that period being part of the period being worse than the other. Um, and there's events in Revelation that do seem to be talking about the same thing as the 70th week. That's true. It talks about a seven-year period, or at least a specifically a three-and-a-half-year period. Okay. It talks about a tribulation. There's a lot of connections, but the seals specifically. Jesus opening the seals. Do I connect that to the seven, 70th week? Um, I, I, don't, I don't know how I would answer that. Not Marco says, can you explain the Holy Spirit inspiration doctrine? I struggle with understanding why God did not rewrite controversial Bible passages. I know I'm not, I, I know I'm only a man and I seek to understand. All right. Not Marco. Um, this question is apparently not for Marco, <laughs> but um, let me start with what your second part of your statement here. I struggle with understanding why God did not rewrite controversial Bible passages. Let me point to um, Jesus's teachings and look at it as a parallel. Look at Jesus in the gospels. This might strike us as weird, and that's fine, but it's there. Jesus brought controversial and difficult teachings, and it seems clear that he did it on purpose as a way of vetting the crowd. Who will really follow me? Who will really trust me? And I, I mean, I would not make this up. If I was writing my own Bible, I wouldn't have written it this way. Of course, it would be horrible. But <laughs> what I'm saying is this, this, this isn't something I would have thought of, but Jesus like John 6, he brings a deliberately difficult teaching. He expresses it in a challenging way. And part of the goal is to vet the crowd, to find out, read the whole Gospel of John to get the context here, but to find out who is really going to trust him and who is not going to trust him. What I'm suggesting is there are plenty of people who think that this challenging Bible concept or passage is why they're not following God. But maybe there's other reasons we're not following God. And this passage is the thing that revealed it. I think that this happens plenty of times because two people encounter the same passage and one says, you know what, Lord, I trust you. And the other one says, I hate you. 
I hate Christianity. I hate the Bible. I reject it. It's disgusting to me now. And you're like, well, you know, different people encounter the same thing and respond differently. There's, there's something going on there that's not just about the thing. So I think Jesus did this and it's possible that God's doing this too. But I'll, I'll add some more. Plenty of Bible passages are controversial, not because they're actually should be controversial, but because we don't understand them well. We read them out of context. We don't read books of the Bible. We read verses. We read tiny little sections. And then we try to ask challenging questions about them. And that we create the controversy in some cases. Um, what's not controversial according to the Bible is that God is the judge of the earth and that that's a good and right thing. And that when he brings judgment, it's man that's problematic and God who is making it right. That's how the Bible presents that. And if that's the challenge people have, if there, if there are challenges that God judges, that is a vetting thing. It reveals the hearts. Will I yield to the judgment and justice of God or will I shake my fist at heaven and say, you owe me and you're wrong? I think that maybe the Bible's doing, in some cases, what Jesus did in some cases, which is vetting the crowd by letting them deal with difficult teachings to see if they're going to trust. I think that sometimes is what happens. Um, can I explain the Holy Spirit inspiration doctrine of the idea that if we try to keep it, the simpler we keep it, the easier this is, is that men, as, as it says in the scriptures, right, that men were moved by God when they wrote. Not that, not that it's a dictation that God gave them word for word what to write, but that the Holy Spirit inspired and led and directed them so that what they wrote was what he wanted to see. I mean, that's, that's it. So that we look at the eventual work and we go, wow, this isn't just from you, right? No, no prophecy was from some private person from private interpretation as one translation puts it in first Peter, but rather men were moved of God, moved of the Holy spirit to write what they wrote and it's trustworthy and reliable. It's inspired. Um, yeah, it's not just from man. It's from God. Number seven, anonymous question here. My wife is an unbeliever. The more I attend church, the more strain it puts on our marriage. Is it right to continue going to church or to stop? I pray for her every day. And you put 1 Corinthians seven fourteen in parentheses there. Let's look at that passage to see if that gives us context. Um, yeah, the unbelieving husband's made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. This is about sancti a sanctification effect, not a salvation thing. But yeah, you, you, you're, you're bringing the spiritual presence. In this case, it's the husband, not the wife. But you're bringing the spiritual presence into the family, into the home that is helping to improve the spiritual condition of the house and of the kids and everything. Um, I'm glad you pray for her every day. Please don't stop. The more you attend church, the more strain it puts on your marriage. Here's the, here's the questions that I would, I would lob at you if we could have a conversation, my anonymous friend. Um, are, you, are you attending church um, as a way of faithfulness and obedience to Christ? Or is there a chance, and you got to honestly ask yourself this, that some of your church attendance is a way of avoiding tension in the home? This can, this is not just a religious thing. This could be anything. It could be that somebody has a hobby where they go off and they do a certain game or they go into the room and they play a certain game and they're using these things as a way of escaping tension and difficulties in the home. We must not, as Christians, we must not abandon the fellowship and break from attending and fellowshipping and being involved in church. But we do have responsibilities in the home and scripture indicates in the new Testament that if you don't take care of your home, you're not fit to serve in ministry anyways. So there are those who use ministry as a way of getting out of the house and as a way of avoiding their responsibilities to their own family. I'm not saying you're doing this. This is not an accusation. 
in any way, shape or form. These are the things that I would work through, you know, asking this question. So if that's the case, if, if it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm actually avoiding, like I'm saying no to family things. I'm, 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 a, I'm, I'm gone five days a week because I'm always like, I'm an, I'm an usher for every event that happens at the church. I'm always gone. And then my wife's getting upset. Okay. But this isn't just about fellowship and attendance and service. This is now about a, about abandoning my responsibilities at home. So yeah, find that balance and realize that with an unbelieving wife, you will do less ministry than a, than a couple who is, who are both believing who volunteer each other, right? My wife supports me doing lots and lots of ministry. If she was not a believer, I would do less ministry. I know that sounds weird to you guys, but I, she's a ministry and the needs of that ministry are important. And so I wouldn't stop serving the Lord. I wouldn't stop being Christian. I wouldn't stop attending church, but it would change how many hours, right? There's a night where I'm like, hey, do you mind if I study tonight? You know, and she's like, oh, I'm gonna go ahead because she supports what I'm doing. But if she was like, oh, I was really wanting to spend time together, then I'm gonna say, oh, I won't study. Let's spend time together. So work through that, consider it all. Just a reminder, we got all the 20 questions. This is number eight. Stephen with Passenger Ministries asks, hey, Mike, thanks for your ministry. It's helped me a ton. I'm very happy to hear that, Stephen. Like, seriously, that thrills me to know that this stuff actually practically helps and impacts your guys' lives. Um, all, all credit to God and his wonderful word. What is the best way to read numbers? What is, what's some really cool stuff about it and how it ties to Jesus? Thank you. <laughs> oh, that's a big question. Best way to read numbers? Um, I think maybe the, one, of the, one of the best ways to read numbers is straight through very quickly. And this is not because you want to finish it quickly, but rather because numbers is a story book. Like there's tons of stories. Numbers, in spite of the title, <laughs> Numbers is actually a very interesting read with lots of different stories that are going on there. Um, so I think reading larger sections and reading it faster, it helps you to see and capture all of that. Um, other things like when you read, say, part of the counting of the people and you read about the tribe of Simeon and how many of them there were in Gad and Judah and stuff like that as you're reading Numbers. Uh, when I'm in a genealogy in the Bible, I like to ask myself if I recognize these names and remind myself of some of the stories associated with them. So of the people of Joseph, namely of Ephraim, there were this many people. Then I'm like, oh, Joseph, Ephraim. Oh yeah, I remember their stories. And I remember how Joseph was, 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 was rejected by his brothers and then he ends up. So like when you remember the stories, it, it feels more like you're looking at a picture album of people you know than a picture album of people you don't know, right? That's a very different experience. Albums of people I know. Oh, that's, that's, oh, it reminds me. But when I don't know them, it's like, that's like reading a genealogy and you don't know any of the people. Um, what I would recommend as far as numbers goes, um, how it ties to Jesus. Oh man, pictures and types, pictures and types over and over and over again. I think that we, um, like numbers chapter two, I'm just scrolling through some of numbers, the arrangement of the camp. When you actually, you know, you write out these, these, the arrangement of the camp, and then you realize that they, they likely would have been, um, cause they, this sounds weird. They had to take the poo outside the camp. Okay. This is a sanitary thing that's actually required in the law. Um, that this would have meant they would have potentially wanted skinny, skinny, um, columns of people. So you could more easily get outside the camp. You know, it, so it wasn't a big circle. The camp was shaped differently. It may, it may well be that the camp was shaped as a cross. I know that sounds cool and like too convenient, but it's actually plausible. I'll put it that way. Um, when you read about the, the duties of the Levites and, and, and Aaron, you're reading about ultimately pictures of Jesus Christ. You, you read about the rock that was struck. When you read about 
Um, there's so many pictures of Jesus in the book of Numbers and the wilderness wanderings of Israel. These are things that I would spend a lot of time on myself. Um, yeah. All right. <clears throat> Number nine. Uh, Grenos says, Hi, Pastor Mike. Greetings from Norway. I'm wondering about your thoughts on deliverance. Would you consider calling and identifying demons biblical or is it not? Um, I don't think the question here is if it's biblical. Um, because in scripture, or I should say it's easy to answer the question, is it biblical? The answer is yes. In scripture, Jesus calls out demons. Get out of there. Now, identifying demons is a different task, isn't it? Identifying demons is something I don't generally see in scripture. Now, Jesus is like, what is your name? Okay, that's true. But I never see the demon going, my name is alcohol. I'm the demon of alcohol. I, my name is jealousy. I'm the demon of jealousy. And I've heard many people say, now, I'm not here saying that they are absolutely wrong. What I'm saying is, is it biblical? I've heard many people suggest that that's the demon of alcohol. That's the demon of jealousy. That's the demon of pride. That's the demon of rebellion or whatever. And I'm like, when the Bible talks about pride, alcohol abuse, jealousy, when it talks about these things, rebellion, it roots those problems in the person, not in some external spiritual force. That I have a problem with. That I think is unbiblical. When I pick up and drink too much, when I sit down and obsessively play for too many hours on video games when I should be doing other things, when I react harshly and cruelly to my friends or my family, my loved ones, this is coming from me, not a demon. Paul talks about this in Galatians, right? That, that we're, 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 um, we're battling between the spirit and the flesh, not the spirit and the other spirits, right? The flesh is our battle. So demons and demonic oppression, legit. Casting out demons, legit. But identifying demons as the source of our sins, that does not seem to be a biblical concept to me at all. Like, I think, nah, <laughs> nah, <laughs> let's, let's not do that. Let's not do that. Let, let's, let's, let scripture guide us here and say, hey, when I deal with lust, when I deal with anger, when I deal with pride, when I deal with selfishness, which are all things I deal with, me, Mike Winger, these are all things that are coming from my flesh. They're not coming from a demon. I can't blame anywhere else. So demonic attack is real. Demonic oppression or possession is, is also real. And we should be dealing with those in a real way. We just should not be putting off our sin issues onto demons. This is my cat. <laughs> there she is. She, she joined us. Hey. She is just all fluff. Anyhow, um, it's always good to follow up a discussion of demons with a, a cute little kitty. Um, Either because cats are cute or some of you think cats are demonic. And that is also not biblical. May I explain that to you? Jesus is, after all, the lion of the tribe of Judah, which is a giant cat. Number 10, anonymous question. Um, can you explain Matthew 7.21 versus Romans 10.13? Also, how do you spot worldly Christians, 1 Corinthians 3.1, from those who are unsaved but have good works? Matthew 7.22 through 23. Shouldn't we have grace for sanctification? All right, but let me, let me tell you guys something that I'm going to throw out there. Anonymous question. This is not personal. It's just about like what works well online. It's better if you guys try to ask one question and not three questions. Here's these verses. Explain those. Now, here's the other verses. Different, different, completely different issue. Explain those. And now here's a whole different issue. Explain that. This is like, 
I'm not going to be able to ha handle all that. So what I'm going to do, probably moving forward, is I'm going to pick part of the question and answer it because it's just too much. Um, so Matthew 7.21 and Romans 10.13. Let's look at these things. Um, so, hey, I don't knock you for trying to squeeze in as much as you can. Maybe you've been trying to get questions in for weeks. So you just you've tried to like whittle it down. But for me, I can't handle it's It's not 60 questions. <laughs> it's 20. Um, all right. So Matthew 7, 21. Can I explain this versus Romans 10, 13? Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Right. So, um, oh, put it on your screen. So the basic idea here is like, hey, it's not enough to claim that I'm Lord. And this great, really good observation that Romans 10, 13 also talks about calling Jesus Lord. So let's deal with that. Um, he's like, hey, it's not enough to call me Lord. You got to also be the one who does the will of my father in heaven. Now let's look at Romans 10, 13 and see why this is potentially confusing. Um, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But the way I, I, Jesus says, not everyone who calls me Lord is going to ultimately be saved. It's going to be in the kingdom. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I think the simple answer here is that it's a sincere call. So when Jesus says, there are some who say to him, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and that and da, da, da. And he's like, no, you didn't truly sincerely call me. Lord. You called me Lord, but it wasn't genuine and sincere. And nobody should take Paul and his Romans 10 passage as meaning that you can insincerely call Jesus Lord. And there's plenty of people who do this, especially if you're raised in the church or if you're raised with kind of a Christian background, you tend to call yourself Christian just like uh, you've like osmosis. You've sort of absorbed Christian things, but maybe there isn't like a genuineness. Like you're not, you're not actually calling on the name of the Lord. You just are a Christian by association. Um, so the next question you can ask is this, what about the works? And the passage that Jesus brought up, that Jesus says, what you need to do to enter is you need to do the will of the Father. Well, no, I actually, I said it wrong. I said it different than Jesus. Jesus didn't say, if you want to enter heaven, you have to, you have to do the will of the Father. He's describing the kind of person who is entering heaven, which is the person who does the will of the Father. There's a difference. Because doing the will of the Father can be a result of salvation, not the cause. So when you look, when you say, I call upon the name of the Lord genuinely, I am transformed from the inside out. I begin to live a different life. I begin to do the will of God. Truly. Doesn't mean perfectly and I always am, you know, sin-free and stuff. But there is, a, there is a difference. Like the will of God here is I'm truly yielding my life to him and then he works in me to will and do according to his good pleasure. So then when I look at people and I see fake claims to love Jesus and real claims to love Jesus, the evidence is the life. Or am I actually living that life? And if I am, then it's genuine. So the big issue here, and this is, this is me being very Protestant, <laughs> the big issue here is that works are the result of salvation. They are not the cause. Works are present in the life of a believer, but they're not what makes them a believer. Belief does, and then believing brings out the works because of the work of God in their life. Number 11, Rebecca Rudd says, what advice do you have for Christians in college? 
Christians in college. Um, oh, man. Uh, there's a lot of issues going on there. Uh, probably one of the number one things with college is that culturally you've moved into an environment. Um, okay, you're young enough where you're still probably likely to just sort of magnetically get pulled in the direction of the people you're around. It, this is pretty likely going to happen to you. So you're young enough for that to happen. But there's... Um, so there's one issue. Okay, there's one issue is is, is don't do that. <laughs> so as a Christian in college, be involved in, with other Christians, be in Christian gatherings, and do it as much as you can, especially right now, because you're involved in a very worldly and ungodly environment. That's just what college is. Doesn't mean you're supposed to hate the other people. You want to outreach to them. You want to be, but you've got to have integrity, which means you can't follow the lemmings off the bridge, right? You you've, you've got to you've got to walk the walk, and for that, be in Christian community because they will naturally pull you in the right direction. Do not starve yourself of fellowship. Don't even just go once a week. If you're in college, especially, I think, for this season, be as involved as you can. Um, other things, um, your professors, this would be my advice to anybody in college, is your professors are not as smart as you think. <laughs> um, it, a lot of us, have, now not every professor is like this. There's some great professors in colleges. There, I've had some great ones, but I've also had the other ones. And the truth is the professor knows so much more about the topics they're covering and many issues than the student in their class, right? 19-year-old, 20-year-old shows up and the professor knows so much more than them. And so um, I remember having professors in a piano class trying to teach me po politics, right? And I, okay, true story. We, we were in, um, not piano class, uh, music theory, music history, excuse me, music history class. And the teacher, he was talking about music history and he mentioned something about the Reformation and he talked about how rude it was, how the Reformation started when um, Martin Luther took these 95 theses and he just hammered them onto a church door. And he goes, can you imagine someone hammering something through your church door, your big, beautiful church door? And the, cl and the class laughed because they were like, yeah, I never thought of how ridiculous this Martin Luther thing was. Like, wow, the Reformation started from defacing a church. Okay. And so I like, I, raise my hand and I was like, and I, I just, I mean, by God's grace happened to know this one thing. Um, and I was like, well, yeah, actually the church door was, was the gathering place of the community. Everybody went to church. And so it was normal to put public notices on the church door. This was just what was normal and accepted. It's where you put things like that. It wasn't offensive. And, oh, now a lot of the students would have walked out of the class, like feeling negatively about Christians or religion or Protestantism or something like that because of this professor who teaches music history. <laughs> and so we get this a lot. We get statements, well, the Bible's been translated so many times. Like, if a college professor says this, it's because they're just highly ignorant on the issues. But they seem so smart. That's the, a danger of college. Um, um, I would say um, another piece of advice I'd have for Christians in college is be diligent. Um, it's hard sometimes at that young age to think that working really hard and getting good grades actually really matters. I had a hard time with that. Be diligent. Think of it like this. Not, it's not just about grades. It's about you having a responsibility and honoring God with it. And so you work really hard and you do really well and you, and you perform well as a way of saying, God, I'm learning diligence. I'm learning integrity that I will carry forward with me into everything I do in this world for you. And if you look at college like it's a ministry unto God, a service unto God, it will help you buckle down and work hard and do, do well. Yeah. Anyway, there's a few thoughts. There's more I could probably say. But number 12, Aiton Odenail, uh, Aiton Odenail says, can the gospel be preached to the dead? 
according to first Peter four, six, there is, is there any hope to people after they die? Also first Peter three, 19 through 20, what is preached unto the spirits in prison mean? All right. First Peter four, six. Um, I actually want to do more of a study on this someday. I'd like to, because, um, uh, I have had conversations with people where I thought, oh, this would be worth talking about more. But let's read these verses. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Um, so 1 Peter 4, 6. Um, this is in the same book as 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20. So that provides some context. I'll, I'll just notice this, that the... Um, the tenses are interesting here. The gospel was preached, past tense, even to those who are dead. So it doesn't say the gospel was preached to those who were dead, which means they were dead when it, when it was when they had it preached to them. But rather the gospel was preached to people who are now dead. So this verse doesn't seem to comment on whether or not those people were, it doesn't seem to say that those people were dead when it was preached to them. Okay, that that seems to be the context of the verse. Now, um, the other passage, first Peter three, 19, um, well, I'll back up just a little bit. We'll go to verse 18 for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So it's talking about his, his death and his, his time on the cross. He suffered, he died. He was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. This is something Jesus did in the spirit. So this seems to be something Jesus does post de post death on the cross before the resurrection. This seems seems to be that's how I would I would take it. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which few that is eight persons were brought safely through water. Now I, I have a whole video on this in my first Peter series where I go through this passage more slowly. And you can check that out. Go to, you could go to my YouTube channel. It's hard to find series on YouTube sometimes. So you could also go to biblethinker.org, go scroll down and find series. You'll see first Peter and you can find exactly where I deal with this in great detail. Here's a real short answer. I think what Jesus did is after his death, um, he went and he, uh, preached to those who had been like waiting, right? Like they died without the knowledge of who Christ was. Now they're going to see that Jesus is proclaiming to those who've died, right? There's to their spirits that he has had victory over death, that he has paid the price, that he is the way, the truth and the life. Like they're learning the thing that creation's learning as Jesus dies and rises. They're learning this as well. Um, it seems to be focused on the ones who did not obey. So this would be either the, the people who died in the flood, right? Or some, or some would say it's related to like the Nephilim and things like that. I get into more detail on that. I think what's happening here though, is this is a one-time event. And this is, this is where it answers your question. It seems to be a one-time event that happened already past tense. It's already taken place. Jesus, when he dies, he proclaims who he is. It's the unveiling of the nature of the nature of the cross, unveiling of who the Messiah was, how salvation works. And he's proclaiming it to those who died. It seems in the flood long, long time ago but they seem to be people who are condemned. So they're being informed, but they're not being saved. There's the short answer. They're being informed, but not saved. So this does not seem to present a case for post-death salvation, where you reject Christ, you die, and later you receive him. It seems rather to be a case where God is simply, pro you know, because every knee will bow 
to Jesus. Every tongue will confess. So it's part of that proclamation. It doesn't have to do with salvation. Um, preached unto the spirits. That's what I think it means. It's about uh, proclaiming the, the glory and the power and the salvation that there is in Christ, even to those who have ultimately, um, you know, rejected, rejected the truth of God. Number 13, let's have a laugh together. That's the name of the YouTube channel, which says, how can I be sure that I'm going to heaven when I die? <laughs> Sometimes the name of the YouTube channel doesn't match the question. Uh, let's have a laugh. How can I be sure I'm going to heaven when I die? Um, I think that there are two things I'd mention. One is genuine faith in Christ, right? And then two is, but how do I know that I have genuine faith in Christ? So I think genuine faith in Christ is a decision that you can make. I, I choose to trust you, Lord. I choose to trust in Christ. His death and resurrection, I think it's a, a, a decision you make of the will. So genuine faith in Christ. Okay, but how do I know that I've done that? I'm not, because humans are capable of self-deception at high degrees, right? Just look at someone who goes, oh, I love that person. And then they sleep with them and they're like, yeah, now I hate him. And it wasn't really love, was it? But we, I thought I loved them. I, I, I really believed I loved them, but it wasn't really love. Even I didn't know. So how do I know I'm not doing that with Jesus? And I think the answer is going to be, well, what kind of evidence is there of your faith? And this is the book of James where he says, I'll show you my faith by my works. So you don't get saved by those works, but if faith is genuine, faith naturally leads to works. So this is not about sinless perfectionism. And if you think that you're going to, you're going to feel absolutely condemned, but <clears throat> let's laugh, let's have a laugh together. Let let's think of it this way. Look at your life and ask yourself what it would look like if you were not Christian. Is it radically different? That means something. That means something. How would you behave if it wasn't for Christ? That means something. So I think when you look at your life and you see the evidence of, you know, the version of me that, that is not a believer versus the version of me that is, that, that I'm living now, like, is that a different person? But yeah, the genuineness of your faith is the thing. Um, another thing that tests our faith is trials and suffering and hardships and unknowns, things you're going through, things you don't understand. That kind of thing tests and challenges our faith to see if it's genuine or not as well. Those are, those are my answers. Um, it's Your works will not save you in any way, shape, or form. I'm just asking, is your faith genuine? And if it is, it should be demonstrated in your life. And if there's no demonstration, zero, like you look at your life and you're like, I intellectually believe in Christ, but there's zero change. Then I'm like, then I'm not sure you're saved, right? Well, that might sound insulting, but I think it's it's a it's a lifeline I'm extending. Put genuine faith in Christ, not just intellectual belief. Yield your life and your heart to him. It's more than just acknowledging him as Lord. He's your Lord. So a sincere acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord is you're saying, you're my Lord. Right? That's, just, that's, that's the step. DD has a question. Can you explain how Satan became the ruler of this world? Oh, that's a challenging question. I, mean, I don't know that scripture really explains it to us. Um, and with, when scripture doesn't explain something in detail, it's like, how do we, <laughs> how do we have strong answers on some of those issues? Um, it does talk about the state of things, but you're asking how it became that way. So let me tell you a little bit about the state of things based on how I understand scripture. Um, that behind rulers are sometimes spiritual beings that are ultimately pulling the strings. So we read about this in Daniel. Daniel talks about this Prince of Persia character who seems to be a, um, seems clearly to be an angelic type being, right? 
there's like, you know, he's waiting, he's praying and he's waiting and Gabriel's delayed. And it's because, um, this, this Prince of Persia character who's seems to be another angel that he's dealing with. That's interesting. Interesting. Um, we also read about in revelation where it, it says about, I think it's Pergamum that he says, you know, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. So Satan seems to have like centralities of power here in this world. When in Isaiah 14, right, it talks about the, the, um, uh, it talks about Satan there. And also Ezekiel 28, I think that's the passage I'm thinking of. It talks about Tyre, the king of Tyre. And then it talks about sort of the power behind him, at least my interpretation of that passage. And some would disagree. They think it's just talking about the king. I think it's talking about Satan, who's the power behind. Jesus also says he's the, he's, he's the, the, the God of this world, the God of this world. And so we definitely see his control going on there. He, he's pulling puppet strings. Ultimately, God is sovereign above that. And he's going to even use what Satan's plans to bring about his ultimate will. But definitely he's like pulling the puppet strings of the world. You know, overall, the world is being guided and directed by Satan. That's, that's part of his rebellion. Now, it could simply be, theory, um, when you're not yielding to God, you don't just have anarchy. You have what happens at, right after anarchy starts. Right. So like, if you have a government and we all declare anarchy and the government just disappears, all political power goes away, we don't actually have freedom. In five seconds, we just have a number of bullies. And whoever takes the power, whoever is the strongest now is going to be the tyrant over everybody else. Cause right. So anarchy leads to tyranny. Boom, boom. Just right after the, uh, look at what happens when the parent leaves the home and there's six kids and they leave, if they leave no rules and instructions, the person in charge is whoever is the biggest and meanest. <laughs> that's, that's just what's going to happen. I think this is what happens with Satan, the fall of man, the rebellion against God. And so Satan is the power who comes and takes over. And so we, they experience that sort of uh, being part of that kingdom. So that could be part of the explanation. We also see Satan in the garden. Um, uh, we see Satan like at the fall of man, right? We, we, we see that going on as well. And yeah. So I think it's the, it's the anarchy that leads to tyranny that has Satan pulling the puppet strings. Number 15, Kevin Lionel says, um, why don't, or if we don't have to do good works to get saved, why does Jesus tell us to make every effort to enter through the narrow door, Luke 13, 24? Let's read it. Strive to enter through the narrow door for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Um... Let's back up a little bit and read some more. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? So he's talking about how many people will be saved. And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter it and will not be able to. Will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer to you. I do not know where you come from. So there's no familiarity that's, that's there. I don't know. Who are you guys? Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and from uh 
People come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. So the question is, you know, hey, are, is there going to be like a lot of people saved or not that many? And the answer seems to be there's going to be a lot of people who are not saved. And um, I don't see him saying here, um, strive to enter through the narrow door, by which I mean do a lot of good works, because if you don't have enough good works, you're not going to make it to heaven. I think that that's, we're projecting that onto Jesus. I think what he's suggesting is <clears throat> the narrow door is there's a narrowness in the gospel of Christ in that it's only through Jesus. It is only through genuine, true commitment to Christ that you can be saved. Anything less, there is not salvation there. So you need to enter through that. This is why he goes, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the gate. Everybody who doesn't enter by me, right? <clears throat> Pardon me. So um, Jesus ultimately is the narrow way, right? They, they say, Lord, let us in. And they try to get in the door through their association with him as their, as their Lord. And he's like, I don't even know where you're from. Like, I don't have familiarity with you. The, um, the sin that they're committing, the workers of iniquity, is, I think, a symptom of, of them not being genuinely committed to the Lord. So I, what I'm going to suggest is I think Luke 13 is consistent with the gospel message of salvation by faith apart from works that leads to works. But I don't think it's trying to teach you anything about how you get saved. Um, I think it's trying to teach you about the exclusivity of salvation. I think that's the focus that's here. And so that different emphasis means that we're, we're asking a question it's not trying to answer so it feels a little strange when you're studying it ben kirchhofer says how do i combat anxiety about my newborn daughter's salvation it's a difficult topic for me to do to my younger brother walking away from the faith as a teenager thank you mike for your ministry ben um as this is gonna sound <clears throat> like possibly like little help for a big problem um and i hope that it doesn't to you ben my my thoughts on this for what they're worth is um, your anxiety is not anything about truth. It's entirely about your fears for the potential future. Like when you have a newborn baby, there's times where you just sit there and stare at them like so they don't stop breathing. You just watch. I'm just going to watch them. What if, what's, like we are at a heightened state of protection and this causes us to sometimes move into anxiety in an unhealthy fashion. And so... What you can say is, I believe you can say confidently is, if anything happened to her now, she'd be in eternal joys. When she gets older, she will make her choices. And as much as you want to control her choices, as much as you want her saved, the Lord does too. But she's going to make those choices. And <clears throat> it won't be this tiny little girl. It'll be a real woman, an actual person, a full person. And your perspective as a parent will shift a lot on your daughter as she grows up. She'll always be your daughter. You'll always love her. But you will, over time... Learn to respect the decisions she makes and realize that she is making her choices. What you can do is you can share the truth with her. You can encourage her. You can guide her in, in what's right. And you can try to be a good and godly parent. But you can't, you can't make your kids Christians because there is no making someone else a Christian. There's just giving them the truths of the gospel and letting them respond to Christ. It's about, it's about her relationship with him. I don't know if that helps. Um, your, bro your younger brother walked away from the faith as a teenager. I'm very sorry for that. Um, yeah. What, what you can do is 
be a genuine and godly example, probably the best thing you could do is try to be like a good and godly Christian, not one who says, um, this is how you are. I'm your parent. I'm going to tell you how you are. But you realize that you're, you're not just telling a little kid what to believe. You're, you're leading them into adulthood where they will make choices and you're trying to help equip them to make godly and wise choices to become a responsible adult. Anyway, I'm just telling you things that you probably already know at this point. Jesus in Matthew 6, he says, don't worry about tomorrow by worrying who you can add, you know, an inch to your height, right? How can you, can you, can you add hair to your head or change the color of hair on your head from just worrying about things like, well, I guess you can, maybe you can make it gray, <laughs> but you get his point. And the, the point of Jesus here is Ben, when, when, when we look at our lives and we think I'm worried about things that might or might not happen years from now that I can't control, that's when you have to simply say that has to go on the shelf. I am only causing harm by worrying about this. Let me be in the moment. Let me enjoy this time right now. Number 17, Logan White <clears throat> says, since God can't contradict himself, does that mean that his power is limited in a way? I know God's all powerful, but what is the logical reason behind him being powerful and non-contradictory? Since God can't contradict himself, does that mean his power is limited in a way? Um, in a sense, uh, so this is a long debate that many, many have had over the years, which is, it stems from that old gotcha question that has, it will never die. And the question is, can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? Right. And then you're like, well, wait, wait, he can make a rock of any size. So he can make a rock of so big. Can you make a rock this big? Yes. Whatever, however big that is. Yes. He can make it that big. Okay. But, but can he make it so big that he's not able to lift it? But wait, but he's all powerful, so he can lift it no matter how big it is. And he can make it as big as he wants. So <clears throat> this can get a little fuzzy and a little weird. But we realize that we're, what we're asking here is not about power. It's a trick question. Okay, because if God's really powerful, he can make a rock of any size and lift a rock of any size. Right? It would, be a, it would actually be a weakness if rocks of certain size he could not lift. So, it, so this, is, this is a function of his power in that he cannot make a rock so big he can't lift it. That's a that that's because he's powerful, not because he's weak. We're just wording the question in a trick fashion, um, but there are things God can't do or won't do. Both categories are true, right? God God cannot do evil. Is that a weakness? Well, I mean, God could say like, <clears throat> um, do something evil. You know, picture something evil. It's not that God can't do that that function. It's not as though God doesn't have the power to make that thing happen. The reason why God won't do evil is because of his character. So I have the ability to like stab people with forks. Physically, I'm totally capable of doing that, but I will never do that. Right. I hope <laughs> because, because it's not part of my character. And, and so there's things God won't do because of his character, but we can't call that a limit of his power. We call that like a, a godly, a good restraint of his character. It's actually a positive quality that he won't do that. He also won't contradict himself in the sense he's not going to lie. He's not going to um, change his mind, go back on his word. But lying's not a power, right? Lying's not, an, not like a, a special ability. It's like some, some of you, if lying's a special ability, some of you guys are superheroes, right? Because <laughs> you're like, I lie so good. Speaking lies isn't about the ability to say certain phrases or the power to put certain words together. It's about the integrity of being honest or dishonest. And, and so again, this is a, a character weakness that some people present like it's a power and they think, well, God must be limited. Uh, one way to discuss God's omnipotence, his all-powerfulness, is to say that God is capable of doing um, anything logically possible. 
That's one way to put it. So this would mean, can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? It's like, no, that's not logically consistent with the idea of omnipotence. Um, or one could say, can God make a square circle? Well, well, not really, but not because of a lack of power. It's not like if God had more power, he could make square circles. No, square circles aren't a thing. Like these are two words that don't, that, that are mutually exclusive of each other. Therefore, it, okay. Can God make the smell of blue green with Tuesday? Well, like, no, that's a nonsense sentence. That doesn't mean anything. Okay. Square circle doesn't mean anything. It's just, it's nonsense. So these types of trick questions. Yeah. Okay. God does things that are like logically possible. God can do all those things. Um, and it is limited by his character, but that's a, that's a, that itself is a, is a attribute, a quality of God, a positive strength, not a weakness. I hope that helps you out. Yard sale has a question. What are your thoughts on vaccines using fetal cell lines for development? I'm about to lose my job at a big MN clinic. If I don't get the vaccine and struggle with this issue, God bless you, Mike. All right, y'all <clears throat> here's my honest opinions because for those who are like, like me struggle with this issue. Um, I, I have not made videos trying to tell people what they should do about this stuff because I, I feel like it's not, it's not something that I feel super so strong and confident about that. I want to tell everyone how they should think about it. So I've, I've not done that, but, um, although it'd be great for creating viral content, right? <laughs> but, but, uh, I don't care. So my personal journey went like this, um, initial question with vaccines. Hey, if this is going to help people, even if it's slightly experimental, I would want to even volunteer myself to take a vaccine, even though it may have detrimental effects on me because I'm aiding others in the, you know, in them vetting this and getting it figured out so they can move forward. Cause I do think COVID kills a lot of people. Um, so if you're, if you don't think that, that that's not my process. Okay. I, I think that that's legitimate, that it really is a threat to people. I don't know if it's, I'm not saying it justifies all the measures that have been taken. There's definitely some measures that seem clearly unjustified my opinion there. Um, but, but here's the next step in my growth and thoughts through this over the months and years now. Um, <clears throat> but I find that there are fetal, uh, abortion issues connected to the issue, to the use of vaccines, abortion issues. That is babies were aborted. And that is part of what led to these vaccines being created. Now, I did spend some time researching this, listening to debates on this, trying to think it through and understand it. And here's how I currently understand it. I hope I'm right. I could be wrong because these medical things are just way over my head. <clears throat> so I understand it. Here's the situation. I hope I'm not wrong. I think I think this is correct. That um, the uh, there were abortions done, uh, especially in the 70s, as far as the current vaccines that are on the table in the US. Okay. In China, this is different in China. They have much more recent abortions to produce their vaccines. My understanding was there were some probably abortions done to produce the cell lines that then get reproduced in, I guess, Petri dishes, these cell lines, not like a, a, a person, just the cell lines. And those, those cell lines, ancestors, 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 this is what they use to test the vaccines on to make sure that they'll work on people. That's a real problem. As I was wrestling with this, listening and thinking it through, I was like, I can see the case for saying, I refuse to take a vaccine that is connected to past abortions. And, um, and I can also see the, the person saying, okay, but it is legit and it's a legit problem, but 
these past abortions are so long ago and they're no longer ongoing so that the medical benefit is not like a new vaccine being tested by these cell lines does not cause or promote future abortions. And I go, well, that, I, I guess that does make sense. I mean, if, you know, if you think about it that way, you go, okay, th there's at least a case there. Let's not act like by taking this vaccine, I'm supporting abortion because I, I don't think that it actually does work that way. But you're benefiting from something that benefited from an abortion, even if it was many, many, many years ago. On the other side of the issue, you have people saying, no, this is where we can put our foot down. Okay. Th this is, um, what's the name of the guy? Oh, I can't remember who's promoting the Christian who's promoting this view. He's like, this is where we put our foot down as Christians. We say, Hey, we will take a vaccine. We just won't take one that's connected to abortion. We've got to tell these companies to stop using this, these cell lines. They can, they don't need to, they could come up with other ways. They don't have to, we got to put our foot down. And, and I thought, yeah, that, that could be like a cultural movement moment, right? Where these, these companies go, Hey, we, you know, we make our money from these vaccines. We make our money from these products. Let's, let's come up with a new procedure just so we can make more money. And I'm like, I kind of like that idea. I do. But we also have to be honest. If we're going to say that we're going to be putting our foot down on lots of vaccines, aren't we? And I want a full list of every medical procedure and benefit. This is not just about COVID vaccines, right? Like when you take a, a, whatever vaccine, we take a series of vaccines as young people. And I'm not obvious. I'm not an anti-vaxxer and there's some in the, in the, who are very committed to this issue. You haven't convinced me. So I'm not on that page on that page. Um, but, but you're going to have to then, you know, remove tons of medical treatments. Don't just, don't just put your foot down on one issue of COVID and then you're going to go and have your, your, your cat vaccinated later. I don't know if you're, probably cat vaccines aren't part of this, but you're not going to go and just, you know, have your kids vaccinated with other vaccines that are equally related to the same, same fetal cells because they use these fetal cell lines for all kinds of different medical developments. Okay. So don't, don't do that. But then, but then here's what caused me to fall on the side where personally I lean towards saying, yeah, yeah, I take the vaccine personally. It was the idea that if it had been my child that in, in the 1970s had been aborted, not for the purpose of these medical procedures, but for other horrible reasons or had died in some murdered or something. And they took the cell lines and then now the cell lines were being used to promote vaccines that were hopefully going to save people's lives. As the father, I would think at least something good's coming out of that. And, um, and it's not promoting ongoing abortions. That's key. That's a key issue here. So that's my current understanding. Like, um, it's tragic and sad, but it's not promoting ongoing abortions. I don't believe, and some believe it is, in which case you probably shouldn't use it. And so that's where I lean. That's kind of where I've landed and I'm willing to change my mind on it as well because I find it a morally challenging issue that I've gone a little back and forth on. So those are my thoughts. And um, you can unsubscribe <laughs> if you need to. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'll move on to the next one. Tony Oshikanlu says, how can you know that you are satisfied in God? How does it manifest practically? Does doing Christian things mean I'm satisfied in God? Can't I do Christian stuff and still not be satisfied in him? Yeah, that's a good question, Tony. What does it mean to really be satisfied in God? Well, I mean, there's 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 times where clearly the apostles and the writers of the New Testament are not satisfied in the sense of, dude, life is good. I'm, how are you doing? Blessed. Better than I should be. You know, that kind of thing. Nothing's wrong with that. Like, you can say those things. But can you really say that every day? Or are you supposed to as a Christian? Um 
being satisfied and being content has different meanings. On one side, it could mean, Lord, I trust you for the glorious future that's coming. So I'm willing to endure whatever I'm going through now. Well, that's a very different kind of contentment than someone who's like, I'm just happy the way things are. You don't have to be happy the way things are as a Christian. And it's not like, like, let's say that your wife is an unbeliever and she cheats on you and then she leaves you and divorces you. And someone's like, hey, you're still satisfied in God, right? And you're, and, and you kind of look at him sideways like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, <laughs> because part of you is like, I mean, my faith is not hindered. I trust in God, but life is terrible right now. And my hope is that things will get better. I'm not actually satisfied the way things are. But I'm satisfied in God in the sense that I trust his goodness, that I will stay committed to him, that I will continue to believe him, and that I will wait for him to wipe away my tears and to fix all the troubles that are in my life. I'm going to wait on God. That's the kind of satisfied I think that we want to go for. Um, and so, you know, yeah, that's how to me it manifests practically during those hard times. You say, does doing Christian things mean I'm satisfied in God? Uh, I don't, I mean, just doing Christian things just means doing Christian things. I don't know if it means you're satisfied in God. Um, can't I do Christian stuff and still not be satisfied in him? I suppose you could. Tony, I think for me, those, those last two questions are a little vague for me to really understand what you're getting at there. So forgive me. Um, I could just guess at what you mean there. Um, satisfied in God is things like, Lord, I... I, um, your promises for the future are enough to get me through today. There's, a, there's being satisfied in God. Your promises for the future are enough to get me through today. There's a good satisfied in God thing. Number 20, last question for today, is pledging allegiance to, the, to a country or flag a form of idolatry? Thank you and God bless you. Uh, this is from A.J. Dolman who wants to know about pledging allegiance. So, the, you know, we used to say the pledge every day in school. <clears throat> and we, and we would, let's think about the words. This is in, in the U.S. You know, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. Okay, so I'm, <clears throat> I'm pledging allegiance. I will be committed to my, my, my country, my citizenship allegiance to this country. To the flag, that's the symbol of the nation. And to the republic in which it stands. Okay, one nation, indivisible, under God, with liberty and justice for all. I, I like the under God part because as a Christian, what I'm suggesting is that I will obey God more than I obey my government. It's under God. And so I'm even going to be yielding to God more than government. My allegiance to the country involves things like I will not spy for the enemy. Right? Um, I, I'm going to pay my taxes. Uh, I'm going to obey. The, I'm going to obey the laws of the government. Like those are the to me, this is what allegiance pledging allegiance to the flag means. The flag represents the country. So I'm I, Am I worshiping the flag by pledging allegiance to it? I don't think so. It's not, it's not an act of worship. So I can have a flag, but when I bow and worship and praise the flag, that's a different issue. <laughs> okay. So I think the allegiance there is good. I think Romans 14, uh, is it 13, tells us that we need to obey the, the governing authorities. So we are to actually obey the governing authorities. And it, ta it, it talks about the legitimacy of those governments. And so allegiance to a government under God is entirely appropriate, right? But I will always obey God over man. So I, I think that, that the next statement, uh, one nation and, you know, indivisible with liberty and justice for all, these are, these are statements not about facts of reality as much as they are about the ideals of the nation. 
ideally, this is what we're trying to be, a nation that's indivisible, that has liberty and justice for all, freedom and justice. These are ideals. I, I like those ideals, so I could say that. So yeah, now if your pledge of allegiance involves other things that are above and beyond that, or involves pledges like, I pledge allegiance to my country above and, above and beyond all religious commitments I have, I'd be like, <laughs> nah, <laughs> I'm not going to pledge that. I pledge allegiance to my country, which is the godliest country that has ever existed. And like, well, no, I'm not going to like say things that aren't true. <laughs> um, so it depends on the thing. In general, commitment to government in its proper place of, of power and authority is a Christian value. This is something we, we should, as Christians, remember in our worldview, is that we view authority very highly. Even if the people in those authorities are abusing it, we view their authority very highly. And we will try to submit and yield to authorities wherever we find them. This is, this is a Christian value. It's not pleasant, but it's godly. Yeah. And so I, I think that that's a, a healthy thing. There's my thoughts on that, AJ. Um, I hope that you guys find it helpful. Thanks for joining me today. This has been the Friday Q&A. Every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. That's California time, whatever time of year it is. And um, <clears throat> I answer your questions in the live chat. Other than this, guys, I will not have a video live on Monday. No live video this Monday. But I will probably upload a video that I did with... Um, you know, you've been seeing all these short clips from this Reddit interview that I did a while back where I just uploaded individual clips. That's all one interview. I just chopped it up. I'm going to upload the full unedited interview and that'll probably go up on Monday. And it's like two hours long or crazy long, which is why I chopped it up. But there are some clips, several questions that are in the, the full version that I did not turn into individual videos. So that'll be getting uploaded soon. And then you can watch it all if you like. At any rate, thanks for being there. Thank you to the uh, mods for your help. I do very much appreciate it. And may the Lord be with you. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Like the simplicity of, as a Christian, the simplicity of just knowing the goodness of God, the love of Christ, and pointing your life in the direction of Jesus. And then here's my cat. Hold on. Wait, oh, you can't see her. There she is. Oh, yeah. That's... If that doesn't make your day better, then I don't know. Maybe you have some kind of problem. 